Everybody, welcome to Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 291. Uh, this week we have a good friend of the show, Quinn, also known as Professor Q on Instagram. How's it going? Good, man. What's up, Steve? It's going good. Uh, always fun to, to talk to you. Uh, I've talked to you a ton uh, in person at the different conferences and things, and um, have not had a chance to, to really get you on the show yet. And you are a valuable source of knowledge for a ton of green natural farming knowledge, and uh, also an educator as well that spends a lot of time educating others up there in the Northeast. So I uh, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on the show. Um, real quickly, before we get started, I did want to throw this up here. Uh, oh, I have the wrong thing here two seconds there we go now it should work there we go now it's working um, if you guys are looking for more aquaponic cannabis information uh, check out apmjclass.com marty and i have a huge selection of uh, aquaponic cannabis information in a very long format class we've had a uh, rave reviews in fact we just had a, a really good uh, uh email someone wrote us from uh, south africa that's taking our class and said it's really helped change their farm uh, quite a bit and, uh, and really improve yields and things like that so um, definitely check them out over at uh, apmjclass.com. Marty and I put a lot of time and effort into it, and we have a, a bunch of cool stuff. I actually have a, a new microscope coming, uh, hopefully tomorrow or Friday, or I'm sorry, tomorrow or Saturday, uh, and we're actually going to start doing a bunch of filming for a new KNF series on uh, doing a lot of microscope work. So it's, you know, doing a lot of the KNF stuff that people traditionally do, but then. Here's what it actually looks like under the microscope because I haven't seen a lot of pairing of those two types of things. And I think it'd just be kind of a fun direction to go. And then also like, I think that there's also going to be a ton of variety with people that are doing those as well, because I think that, you know, as we all know, your, your local microbes are going to vary quite a bit. And even the percentages of different microbes can vary from, from place to place. So uh, I think it'll be a fun series to do. So uh, anyways, uh, for joining us today uh, tell us a little about uh, yourself and and what you're all about uh, i'll throw your uh, instagram up here yeah um my name is quinn i grew up in pennsylvania and traveled a bunch and lived all over lived in cali a little bit and whatnot and i decided i wanted to move up to maine because the water was clean and the cannabis laws were pretty good and uh got some property and started growing weed um you know professionally and I've uh, been doing that for almost five years. Um, I basically had to kind of like find my own way with Korean natural farming and indoor cannabis as there wasn't really anybody to look up to for that. So that's what I've like, you know, kind of carved my path out uh, with a lot is um, how to implement Korean natural farming in a conventional indoor cannabis grow. And then I also have a, you know, a 30 by 70 greenhouse outside. I'm like 50 lights flowering indoors and then a 30 by 70, um, basically just season extender greenhouse outside. And I'm like fully, you know, pretty well integrated. I deliver to stores and then stores sell my weed under my brand. So like I'm all the way to the end consumer, you know, they're aware that they're buying from me. I'm not getting like white labeled or anything like that. And I fetch really good price and I'm, I'm really happy that I've been able to establish myself in the market and stuff. That's been really cool. Um, other than all the natural farming and cannabis stuff, I like to spin fire. I like to break dance and I like to make jewelry. So those are kind of like my 
other things I like to do. Yoga is also dope. Um, and I'm passionate about like gardening and all sorts. I'm pretty new with other plants. So I'm just like still figuring all that stuff out. Cool. Um, so what are, what are, you know, some of the ways that you've been able to kind of stand out in the market? I know it's something a lot of people have kind of struggled to do, especially with the flooded markets like California and Oregon and some of the other places where you do, uh, and, and Oklahoma, especially uh, where you do have a, a lot of competition. Uh, what are some of the keys to, to branding and, and standing out in the, in the noise? Yeah, it's definitely really tough. Um, I think that, um, having something that isn't like if you have a clone that other people have and then they get that weed, they're not necessarily going to remember that it was from you, like a dosi dough or something. They're just going to be like, Oh, I like dosi dough. I got dosi dough. I went back and got dosi dough again. But if you have something that other people don't have, then they're like, what is this new thing? And how do I get it again? Oh, I have to go through this one outlet. So uh, having like your own set of strains, like everything I pheno hunt from scratch and all my stuff is, my stuff and nobody else has it. Uh, so when a customer likes it, they might remember Professor Q or they might remember like Stardosi, for example. But either way, if they remember either of those, it kind of brings them back to me where I don't get kind of whitewashed with all these other brands and all these other product options. If the product is good, then people kind of, it brings them back to me because there's no other way to kind of find that product that resonated with them. Um, so I think having your own strains can really help and then offering something really good. So people, it does raise eyebrows and people do want to come back. I tend to not lead with like a fancy spiel about organics and like all of that stuff. I try to just put really fire weed out. And then when people wonder why it's good, that's when I kind of like explain to them all the stuff I do. A lot of the bud tenders really like my weed. So they, it's another thing is like smoke up your bud tenders, give all your bud tenders tons of weed because they're the people that get excited about your weed and they're the ones that make the connections. Um, so like, it's always worth leaving a jar of weed with your bud tenders. Um, it makes a big difference. Oh yeah, I know uh, there was a group, the Dixie Elixirs actually used to throw whole parties just for bud tenders and stuff and and it got them to move product. Like, like that, I know that kind of stuff maybe is a little, uh, you know, some people feel it's different, differently ethical. How about that? To put it politely, but uh, it certainly <laughs> is a way to, to to really get it out there. You know, again, just like you said, giving them samples so that they know that your shit's fire really is the best way to get it out uh, and moving on the shelves. Yeah, and then like they know, I can say, "Hey, smoke this; it makes you sleepy." And then they can go directly to the clients and be like, "Oh, you have insomnia? You should try this one." So it's like. A lot of the bud tenders, they don't know Bubba Kush from OG Kush. You know, they think they're both Kushes. And it's like, well, that's, those are super different types of weeds. So you kind of have to spoon feed the information to the bud tenders so they can spoon feed it to, to the clients and the patients. So. Yeah. Um, so how did you, you know, kind of come to create natural farming or, or that method of farming that you kind of know, uh, spent so much time on? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at like age 17. And by like age 23 or 24, um, I was uh, I was actually no longer smoking cannabis because I had a um, I became schizophrenic through a poor choice of lots of psychedelics. And um, basically, once that happened, my my intestines started getting really bad. Like my digestive system stopped working very well when I stopped consuming cannabis. It took me a little while to realize they were related. Uh, but once I did, I, um, I ended up getting turned on to like a, you know, like a weird green powder drink. And I was like, oh, this is really helping. The doctor isn't helping. They're giving me tons of steroids. 
what is this green drink? I started realizing that it was had lactobacillus in it and, you know, bacifola and like all these different strains of bacteria. I started going down the probiotic rabbit hole. I then heard about Probiotic Farmers Alliance, which was like a Facebook page. I kind of found maybe in like 2017. And at that point in time, then I heard about labs and you hear all these different things. And um, I ended up, I guess, the fall of 2017, downloading Master Cho's book off of the Probiotic Farmers Alliance page and like read that whole book. And that was my first year growing commercial cannabis in Maine and was just like, oh, this is it. And immediately moved to got my own farm and started trying to do all that stuff indoors. And I was very bad at it. And it didn't work very well because I didn't have very many pieces of the puzzle. Then over the next couple of years, realizing which pieces were the right pieces, uh, everyone at the Regen Conference really put my head on straight. That was like where I met Chris and Steve for the first time. And Elaine was there and them kind of like being like, hey, it's about biology, like focus on biology first and then everything else will follow. And that kind of put my head on straight and I was able to like get some IMOs and get things rocking and rolling and and then really actually do some no-till because before that I was wanting to do no-till and I was basically just growing bad weed and was able to like actually start doing uh, no-till or no-till like styles and, and low amendment styles that um that were really fun, so. So what are some of the different um, uh, things that you've kind of um, uh, perfected with KNF that you think maybe is slightly different than maybe uh, uh, stuff that's taught out there? Because you've spent a lot of time really getting into a lot of the different methods and, and doing, you know, different uh, uh, techniques. Yeah, I think um, I think people are really like timid to take the principles of free natural farming and wholeheartedly follow them inside, um, which is super intimidating. Um, but if your potting mix isn't god awful and you implement IMO4 in a really good way and you add some parent materials like some granite in the bottom of large beds, you can um, you can really do really low maintenance, like minimal amendments um, to these beds and, and run them for a super long time. Like I think I'm running like seventh cycle pots that I then dumped into beds and now all those beds are like on the sixth cycle. So um, and, and if I do something wrong, then sure, I have to go back and maybe amend with worm castings and stuff like that. But I'm pretty much just running like mulching, uh, pine shavings and adding IMO4 and potentially doing living cover crops sometimes, and sometimes just mulching and going back and forth between the two. Um, and that is just making healthy soil that does so much of the work. Um, and something that I'm doing that's really taboo is I do spray throughout all of flower. Um, so like I'm, I'm doing the conventional like uh, maintenance solution with an added component, whether that's FAA calcium or calcium phosphorus for the specific life stage of the plant. And it works great. Um, I think people are like, oh, you don't want to spray stuff on your plants. And it's like, well, I drink all this stuff. Like this isn't, I'm not spraying like anything that's I'm, it's basically mist of just water you know like when you drink this stuff it has less flavor than a glass of lemon water so it's really a mild dilution of beneficial things um so i know that is taboo and i'm not necessarily recommending everyone do that and in certain states you certainly have to be careful um but these are just the exact teachings of knf and i've just brought them inside and kind of proven that they work really well if you already know how to grow weed really well and that's its own thing is like you have to know how to 
like train plants and top plants and then be able to bring KNF into that. KNF isn't going to teach you how to grow weed and, and vice versa. So is there anything that you've noticed that's maybe a little bit more different for uh, KNF applications for cannabis specifically than with regular uh, or traditionally taught stuff? I know I definitely dose less nitrogen than maybe some of the original recipes do. Yeah, I would say it's just uh, like the timing specific stuff. So like lining up when you look at the nutritive cycle theory and you start to try to like overlap, okay, this is taught on rice and how do I overlap rice onto uh, cannabis and like, what are the cues? So like, I'm generally applying the calcium phosphorus with, you know, with the base solution at a day zero of flower. And that is, that is like lining me up for that to trigger that plant to stretch and then provide the nutrients for that stretch on that plant. And then if you're running like an eight or nine week cultivar, usually around day 25 to day 30 is when I'm doing that calcium, um, you know, that, that base solution with the calcium. So as soon as I start to see any calyx growth up those pistols, like once the pistols are pretty well set, and I know that the calyx are either just starting to come or ready to come, that's when I'm going to, I'm going to use the calcium and that, like I noticed, um, both of those, I notice a lot of effect pretty quickly. I don't really use FAA in veg. I have it as a tool. I use it in my greenhouse, um, but indoors, I don't find I need the nitrogen. Like I, I really don't find I need the extra nitrogen. There's enough worms and legumes if I, you know, if I grow them. Um, so yeah, so I think it's the timing thing is, is pretty important. Do you have any tips or tricks for people doing IMO collections? It's definitely one I hear people having, uh, you know, various uh, varied um, luck with. Yeah, more fucking boxes. Like, just put out way more boxes. Um, it's a numbers game, statistically speaking. If you're having 10% success on 100 boxes, that's still 10 boxes. Obviously, 100 is crazy, but I like to put out seven boxes, maybe six, depending on how much rice I have on hand. Um, and then you really only need two good boxes a few times a year to build a pretty nice collection pretty quickly. Um, so, and then, you know, you can do... Like you always want to start with what the best option is and work backwards. So I, I hear a lot of people saying like, oh, can I get away with this? Or what's the least I can do? And it's like, well, that's such a poor way to approach something that you care about. So start with what's the best thing to do and then just work backwards to what you can accomplish. So outside, lots of boxes is best. Oh, maybe you, I live in a really cold climate in Maine. So sometimes I put boxes out and after 10 days, they still don't bloom. So I bring all my boxes into my grow room and let them bloom for 48 hours. And then I take the collection rather than just going all the way to immediately to an indoor collection because I'm frustrated. So there's all these stepping stones you can dial back from like a conventional true outdoor to some amount of an indoor collection. There's a huge sliding scale in there and like bears can be tough for some people, some places. So there's a lot of obstacles. Don't just give up, but also don't look for the easy way out right away. And um, yeah, try to find some common ground in there. Yeah, no, I, I haven't had to deal with bears yet, but I certainly have had a lot of field mice get into my boxes, that's for sure. <laughs> Ones I can yeah. still fit through chicken mesh or whatever I put on there. It's like, oh man, I got to put some window screening or something on the next one, you know? Definitely yeah, can be it's a brutal. Um, have you tried using anything other than rice? Uh, I have not. I'm excited to try one of uh, what you kind of worked on I, I, with Chris a little bit in tandem, I want to do thinking about doing like one box, maybe two boxes each year with 
some amount of insect frass. Like I really want to try that and store that and label that separately and make a separate IMO3 that way. Um, I am interested in giving like amaranth a try if I grow something. I would say if I grow a grain, I'll try that grain I grow, but I'm probably not going to dabble with like store-bought grains. It doesn't, it, I don't see much of an advantage. Like if rice works, then some other store-bought grain, I don't, I don't see being superior. But if I grow some corn or some amaranth, I might try to make some, you know, something from my own land and use. That seems like a step forward to me. Uh, I've definitely been uh, looking more into mixed grain stuff. So doing like some oats and some rice and some whatever else, uh, you know, seems like another one that might be a good uh, potential option. It's also very cheap, you know, so I think it's even cheaper than rice. So uh, that can be another good option as well. Um, yeah, I would kind of like to try some corn because it's so easy to grow and I, I want to have corn flour like to eat. So it seems like a it seems like a fun progression. Have you tried the like burying method? There's some people that do like the burying the rice and like two like pantyhose or whatever to do the collection. Yeah, I haven't I haven't tried anything other than boxes. I've always done sure. I made like some pine boxes really early on and then I made a bunch of cedar boxes like two years ago and um I haven't branched out of the into anything else. But I've seen a lot of baskets. Baskets seem to work great. And I have seen some some uh some socks and some things like that, but I haven't tried any of it. So you're a big fan of uh, kind of more aged IMO5 piles. Do you want to kind of touch on that and, and you know, kind of why you're, you've kind of come to that conclusion and, and you know, your methodology around that? Because I think a lot of people uh, often go from uh, either doing IMO2 or IMO3 or 4 and then kind of, you know, at that point, they, they, they don't really carry it on as often to 5. Uh, so what, what, uh, what advantages and benefits have you really seen with, with that? Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, I think it's important to understand that the number doesn't mean that it's better. So like five isn't inherently better than four. I think we kind of get, people kind of get caught up in that. So five is like, um, you're making usually something that is a lot larger. So you might take just like a, you know, a couple, a cubic foot of IMO four and make three yards or 10 yards or 20 yards of IMO five, um, where, IMO5 is where you take something that you have an abundance of and you turn it into a mulch or a fertilizer that you can that you can use directly on your farm. So for example, you could do horse manure and IMO4 mixed together to make IMO5. You wouldn't make a tea out of that and use it as a biological inoculum anymore. It's it's not really a biological inoculum. It's it's a it's a nitrogen additive product that is already biologically balanced and is already cooled off and, and processed so it won't hurt your plants. Um, so what I did is at one point in time, I did a really big pile of lobster and seaweed and horse poop and wood uh, chips and some, and some hay. So I did like this big, really hot, almost thermodynamic style, like a Lane Ingham lasagna style, but I did it with um, with a ton of IMO4 in it. I think I put, I mean, not a ton, but you know, IMO4 is very valuable. So I think I put about five gallon, like a five gallon bucket of IMO4 in there. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is it. So I'm layering it. Those are lobster bodies. Um, and that darker black stuff is all seaweed, like fresh wet kelp from the coast. Uh, my buddy Corey Weaving Genetics brought all this stuff up to me and, and we kind of made this whole thing and I babysat it. And what I'll tell you is this thing beat the shit out of me. I mean, this thing ended up being the size of a Honda Civic 
and it got really hot and I had to turn it. And it, I mean, I've done some compost piles before, but this one probably beat me up uh, more than any of them. If you have to turn something like this three times a day, um, it gets pretty serious, but it, it was amazing to see all the flies, like the flies and the mosquitoes show up. And then the dragonflies showed up. I had like just a, an absolute dragonfly frenzy um, show up after I built this, which was really cool. Um, so something I tried the year after this, I ended up getting a big pile of wood chips and um, I did, uh, I did, so I basically just took a huge pile of wood chips. It was 22 yards of wood chips and I spray, I put five gallons of IMO4 on it and I raked it into the top. Um, so I raked the whole thing into the top and made this, this big, huge, um, you know, wood chip pile that had not that much IMO4 in it, right? Like I'm conserving the product and I let it get rained on and sit all winter. And then in the spring, I chopped into the whole thing and I mulched my greenhouse with it. The cool part about this, because it was so high in carbon, um, it didn't really get super hot and I didn't ever have to turn it. So I was essentially able to do a static IMO5 rather than this, the lobster pile, which was more of a dynamic IMO5. Um, and as far as a person on a property by themselves with no tractor, these static piles are really appealing to me and they, they really have a lot of advantages. Um, so this year I did my second static IMO5 pile and I used extra salt water to help balance out um, some of the enzyme needs of the what it takes to break down the, the long carbon chains in the wood. You need extra salts and minerals to do that for all of those enzymes. So I, I did some extra seawater and uh, and some IMO4, um, and I was actually able to get it buzzing up to like uh, 120 degrees. I had to like move it a little bit once, and now other than that, it's been cruising and it's been over 80 degrees for almost two weeks now. So getting good at these more passive style IMO5 piles and using them to mulch my greenhouse for hard, for high carbon situations is really cool. You can certainly do high nitrogen IMO5s, high carbon IMO5s, and really you can process anything on your property that's organic matter that you want to apply to your plants in some kind of IMO5 recipe. So IMO5 is, is where the it is less strict and there's less of a singular focus. So if you decide what you have or what you want to make, you can kind of always get there with an IMO5 pile. Um, so so uh, yeah, IMO5 can be very um, just different and versatile and doesn't need to be as strict as like the one, two, and three, and four recipes are. Um, in, in, in my understanding and with what I've talked to about Chris, with, with Chris a lot, he really brought me up to speed on some of these ways to some of these linear variables. So you can essentially go between nitrogen and carbon, and that's a way to cool or heat the pile up. You can go between dry and wet, and you can go between different heights. And all of these three main variables will bring you to, you know, more thermodynamic piles or more static piles, and you can adjust to your needs. Um, yeah, this is my soil smith class. Um, yeah. Those are the cedar boxes I made. They're pretty sweet. It's a cedar decking board. It's a six inch wide. So you're cutting three pieces all the same length and then two pieces as the end length. So it's a really minimal amount of cuts. It's really fast to make. You don't have a, you don't need a table saw. You just need a little circular saw. I did carpentry for a year and masonry for like a year and a half. So I like building stuff. I'm not the best at it, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty solid. So I built that greenhouse myself with, with the help of a friend or two. Um, yeah.
I built my indoor grow, like it was just a garage and I, you know, I built everything out in there. So that's something I like about Maine. There's a lot of construction workers up here. It's a very um, blue collar, do it yourself kind of uh, community. And I'm from Pennsylvania where a lot of people are not like that. So I like it up here where everybody's pretty handy. What part of PA are you from? So I'm from Westchester, which is the Burbs, and I yeah. I hate it there, the land of the cul-de-sac, but, you know. I grew up um, in Bucks County, so I feel you. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's I feel like everybody's a piece of crap, and all the good people stick out like a sore thumb. So. <laughs> I guess that's it's, one it's way. It's but I like Philly. I would go, you know, party down there. When I was a Mason, I would every weekend, I would just drive straight to Philly and just like hang out the whole weekend down there and see dead music. And uh, then right when the new Fillmore uh, opened in Philly was like kind of when I spent a lot of time down there, that was a cool venue. Um, yeah, I love seeing live music and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Spent a lot of time down there myself before I left for the West Coast, so for sure. Um, uh let's see here um you, you also have a lot uh, so um what are some of the different things that you've learned uh, you touched a little bit earlier about you know hunting and, and having your different cultivars you know what are some of the different tips and tricks that you found for kind of uh, uh going through large batches of seeds and especially for male selection that's another maybe a follow-up question to the first question yeah yeah so um um space as is crucial also like time spending on seeds like i don't sell seed plants so everything that is for seed is for r d and i never put those on market so it's important for me to not spend too much time like up potting like up potting can kill you you spend a lot of time up potting it takes a lot of time it's very daunting um and and having a lot of small pots is not complementary to a korean natural farming style it's very um, they're, they're very, uh, contradictory. Um, so I like to use two by four, uh, beds, like the raised beds, the living soil beds on, on some wheels with some blue mats in there. And I'll put a five by 10 seed grid in there. So 50 seeds in a bed. And I have two of those beds. So I just pop a hundred seeds every three months. And, you know, you've got, you know, you got a hundred plants, you call the weak ones immediately. You get down to like usually 85, something like that. Um, and then there's a few different ways I can do it where, you know, grow them up, take clones in the top and flower the bottom half or grow them up until you get two clones of each and replant into the beds. Um, there's a few different ways to go about it, but either way, I'm, I'm pretty much able to usually get down to like 30 or 40 females, um, in, in flower and get to select through those and be, everything is just done on the border of my production room. So it doesn't take up a lot of light space. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's pretty efficient that way to get to look through things and having everything in the same bed means you get the same expression. So you're not wondering if this pheno was actually better. You just forgot to water it or something went off in the pot. I really like pheno hunting the same gene pool all in the same bed. I think you get a lot of, um, you get a lot more um, apples to apples with your different trait comparisons that way. Um, so that's really, that's really nice. I, it's about making, get, you know, just putting seeds in, in a rotation, like it, it, cause it's part of your job. Um, you sure you can buy clones from other people. I don't do that. I think it's a liability. I don't think it's worth dealing with pests in my opinion, isn't worth losing the plants I already have. 
if you don't have any plants and you want to get a bunch of plants, that makes sense, I guess. But if you have plants you really like and you're going to put those for at jeopardy for plants you don't know, like to me, I just like the plants I have too much. So I've always done everything from seeds. So with that, it's like, I just want to always be looking for more stuff. So I just make it part of the whole schedule. Like it's just as um, normal as cloning, you know, popping seeds is just something that I do. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't, so I don't, I don't keep males. Um, I plan on probably moving towards um, like feminized breeding, but if you're very into breeding and plant selection, then you know that breeding is all about selection. So for me, it's been like, okay, let me build a, a stable of, you know, the 20 or 30 most unbelievably amazing plants that I can. And that selection process is kind of my step one to breeding um, where I haven't actually gone and decided like, okay, these are the best plants yet. It's time to mix them. I'm very slow with when I think I've made it to the point where I'm ready to do something like that. I do have a princess peach plant that is it's really special. Uh, it has like a very much a peach rings. There's, a, there's juicy peach, there's peach rings. There's a lot of peach terpenes that come out of this plant. It also like morphologically, you can pick it out from like a mile away. It has these really big dinner plate leaves and veg. The stem rub smells like vomit. Like it has all these really cool characteristics. Um, so that is something that I do plan on uh, making some seeds with soon and testing all the stuff. And if I find one or two crosses that are really amazing. I'm, I'll probably release them to the public, but um, it's more about just like finding stuff that's different and kind of going off in my own direction and making seeds that work for my farm. Cause Maine is weird. We have a, we have a really weird atmosphere and no one, very few people are selecting and breeding for where I live. And I feel like as a farmer, it's my duty to make seeds and make plants that work in my, that are climatized and adjusted and work in my atmosphere. So that's the other thing about phenol hunting is you can find what you want, where other people are selecting for what they want. And if you're always at the mercy of what someone else selected for their farm, you might end up just always being a step behind. Well, what, what some of the different factors that you use for selection? Um, so right now resin is big. I, I like short flower time, um, in Maine outside, anything that I grow inside. I like to also grow outside. Obviously there's always outliers. I'm cool with keeping like a weird haze if it's really exceptional. Um, but generally speaking, if I'm going to pick something over 10 weeks, it needs to have a really unique high. It needs to have something really special. Um, so I like short flowering time. That's kind of given, um, things have to be tall enough to be like somewhat productive. Like I, I hate like slow, like bubbas. I really don't like straight bubbas. Um, I think they're just too slow growing. They don't work for my system. I don't have fun growing them. Um, so those are just like baseline, anything on those edges just gets taken right out of the situation usually. Um, but normally I'm looking for the most unbelievable plants. So whatever I smell and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it smells like that. Uh, whatever people smoke and they are like, I can't believe that the high is like this. Um, that's generally what I'm looking for is just stuff that is just really hard to believe that it is that way. Um, with that said, a lot of flower selection, I grow boutique flower and I make a lot of full melt and hash rosin. So I'm, I'm looking for really good flower that smokes and translates really well. I want the flavor to carry through. Um, and then dry resin is something that's really, uh, important if you want to make hash. So you should be able to like swipe a bud with your finger and kind of roll the trichome heads in between your fingers. And when they melt, they shouldn't 
melt to like a slick consistency. Like it shouldn't feel like olive oil in between your fingers. It should feel very tacky, like um, more like honey or like tar, or sometimes even you'll get a sandy resin where it'll stay beaded and just continue to roll. So that tar and that beading, like those are two really good consistencies for solventless extraction. Usually the sandy feeling resin that actually stays kind of dry and gritty, that will make really good rosin, but you won't get the quality of full melt that you're looking for because the, the wall around the trichome is actually too thick where you're getting like a thicker grape. Uh, if you think of like a, like a grape with a thicker skin, it's not gonna taste quite as good as a grape with a really thin skin where it's all juice. So that tar kind of like uh, where your fingers kind of stutter when you rub them together, I find that to usually be a more uh, better for full melt, like a more melty head, uh, whereas the sandier resin is usually just a little easier to work with, but not quite as tasty. Um, and then obviously the terpenes inside it make a big difference, but uh, that took me a really long time to like understand and figure out and develop an SOP. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll go in with a box of rubber gloves and I'll just keep putting on a rubber glove and checking the trichomes and throwing out the rubber glove and try another one and, and go through like that. And, and when you swipe the trichomes and they start to melt in your fingers, that's the best time to smell the resin as well. So you're getting a really good phenotype um, terpene expression at the same time as you're kind of testing resin viability. And I'll totally keep plants that don't have those resin characteristics, but it's always something I'm keeping an eye out for. And if I can find the terpenes I want in a drier resin, I'm always going to take the drier resin option. What about, uh, do you look for anything different for dry sift uh, compared to um, bubble or anything like that or any difference there? Um, I don't really do, I haven't played with dry sift yet. I would like to get some tables and bounce nuggets and do stuff like that, but I haven't, um, I haven't stepped up to that yet. Um, yeah, I don't know if, I, I think there's a lot of talk about being able to get away with some greasier heads if things are dried and cured, uh, but for fresh frozen, you really need those drier, tackier resins, um, where I think you'd, you'd like something like a haze or, um, like a Durban poison, you might be able to have a little more forgiveness if it was dried and then dry sifted. Um, so yeah, I haven't gotten there yet though. What other advice do you have for newer um, hash makers? It seems like you have a lot of uh, a good info there for as far as the different consistencies. This is a, a really good info for people that maybe are, are a little less experienced. Yeah. Um, so I, it's really nice if you can find a plant to teach you like find a plant that works well and then try to understand more about resin. Um, that was something that Colin over at Vessel Life Science uh, kind of made a point of is like find a plant that you understand that works well for making solventless and then let it teach you for a while. Um, and then it, it, it becomes a lot easier to learn. It's really hard to learn on a plant that doesn't make good hash. So it's really helpful if you have a plant that can kind of teach you the way to start. Um, so you know, finding that plant, whether it's getting it from a friend or knowing, you know, how to find it through looking through the right seeds. Um, that's really helpful. Just every, everything really, really cold and rinse all your bags a lot. Like just always be, you never want resin sitting on anything too long. It's going to get things dirty. So I just rinse everything with ice cold water as much as I can. And the colder your room is, the colder the water is, the longer you can wash the plant for, and the colder your room is, the more time you have. Like temperature and time become 
this this like linear relationship where the colder things are, the slower you can go, and the warmer things are, the more of a rush you're just in, and it just makes your life really hectic. So um, really think about uh, you know staying under 50 degrees. You never want your room over 50 degrees, or you're just gonna start having a really bad time. And always make sure your water has been chilled for a long time before you add your weed um, to your water and, and start mixing and stuff. So yeah, just keep things cold and think like a trichome. So always go through like a mental exercise of imagining like, oh, the trichomes are doing this and then they're doing that. And, and that like starting to actually think in terms of this grape-like thing and how it's going to be treated as it moves through the stages can really make everything just second nature and very um, intuitive um, as you kind of move through the hash making process because things are relatively simple the techniques get complex but the methodologies are generally straightforward i was just imagining uh like a, a modified uh, mitch hetberg t-shirt that says think like a trichome because he has that joke like think like a cactus <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that would be that would be <laughs> awesome mitch hetberg's the man <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but i, but I do I do the same thing with microbes, right? Where I'm like, okay, I got to think like a microbe. Like you don't want to kill the microbes, right? So it's that same kind of thing. Is the microbe going to make it through the sprayer? Like think like a microbe. I could probably get through this sprayer if I was a microbe, right? Same kind of, same kind of vibe. Oh yeah. I really like, especially for smaller scale, the rainmakers, the, the four gallon and the, the eight gallons are great for, uh, you know, getting that good application without dealing with pressures or, or, you know, uh atomizers or anything else that's going to kill your microbes or and they're also easy to take apart and clean um i know that they're kind of a, maybe not the highest quality ones out there but they certainly you know for 200 bucks you know if you get a season out of it you know what do you care you know it's fine uh especially if you're doing a larger uh, uh you know a larger operation uh, uh they're they're great and definitely the ones that i think that once you've used like a good triple headed sprayer and you realize how much time it saves and how much better of an application rate that you get, you, you never go back, you know? Dude, you're going to have to, you're going to have to school me because I'm rocking, oh, I have a few different tools, but yeah, I'm going to need to see this, uh, this triple headed sprayer you're talking about. I really like my still, I have like a still backpack that's a Venturi drip for the greenhouse, but I can't really use that for indoor. So I generally just use my one gallon pump sprayer for a lot of my indoor applications and um, I have a bunch of them. So some of them are like, I remove different parts so that they pinch less or I, I cut extra holes in the nozzle so they drip better and different things like that. But I don't know what this triple headed option is. This is the one I like. So you got a compression trimming at the top and you can pop that in there. And so this thing puts out like a wall of mist. It's great. You just angle it up at like a 45 degree angle. You can get like wow. a complete like 360 sphere of mist all around the, the plant. It's fucking great. Okay, so I could probably buy this triple head and just put it on the one gallon sprayer I have. That looks awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you could get these types of attachments as, you know, add-ons to whatever. But this is the one I like. And it's just little discs that hits that and compresses in the little chamber and, and fires out. And this is the one that I like a lot for smaller operations. They make a bigger version for bigger stuff. But this is the one that I think if you're if you're doing any more than like six plants, it really is easy. And then two, you know, you clean it out real well and just use it with water if you're doing your clone domes and all the rest of it, you know. No, thank you. And that is battery. I didn't even realize that was automated. That's actually really yeah, nice. Yeah, you slap the battery on it and you know it works for you know, I think you get about six, eight hours out of it before the battery dies. Yeah, I mean, who's spraying for more than six hours? That's crazy. Yeah, that's perfect. 
Yeah, they're great. And, you know, again, you if you leave the bat, I have had problems with the battery packs, but I have not had any problems with the pumps or the sprayers or the tanks or anything like that. The only issue I've had with these is the sometimes the batteries are not the best quality. Nice. Can but, you hand pump it when the battery dies or is it like one or the other? No. So it has a, it has a switch on this. I don't know. I don't know the picture of it on here, but it has a switch on the side of it and has two modes. So it has like a higher pressure and a lower pressure mode. So you can oh, kind of nice. choose. Yeah. It's, it's really All nice. Right. Yeah. That's, it's, that's definitely my, uh, my weekend uh, treat for myself this weekend. That sounds awesome. I'm going to give me one of them. Yeah, that's, that's easy mode for spraying anything. You, you know, whatever your grow method is, I, once you use one of those, you'll never go back. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. We had a question from Chad. Uh, what's the best way to use kefir in my garden? Um, kefir and labs are very closely related, right? So you could easily make like a labs out of a kefir. I mean, it wouldn't be, it'd be like a labs type thing. You know, it, it's splitting hairs at some point. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Steve's actually the one that was showing me that you could, you could use a, a probiotic and then just throw it in a milk and like basically have instant labs, you know, pretty quickly there. So um, labs and, and, you know, a kefir based labs like product, I mean, they're all very closely related and, and borderline interchangeable. The nice thing about labs is you're getting the yeast and the bacteria from your region. So it's a little more climatized and acclimated but scalability it's very inferior which is where steve really shines as he's like well yeah but we got to make 800 gallons by tomorrow so your rice wash water isn't really going to cut it so you know you you can exist somewhere between climatized and scalability and find what makes you happy and you can combine them as well you know you can still do all your your other methods and just you know, have the bulk of it be the stuff that's easy off the shelf and then, you know, add those yeasts and, and other local stuff with it. And you'll get a kind of a, a, a mother colony, if you will, that's off of the stuff that you've created. It's why I like uh, adding both rice wash and um, new lactobacillus cultures, you know, every three to six months, just to kind of help with the diversity of your cultures. And then I just, I just chain cultures out one after next. So I'll take a big ladle spoon. Sorry about the dog in the back just being a jerk. Um, let's take a big ladle spoon of, uh, of labs and use it to, you know, seed my next batch and, and, you know, kind of change it over. I believe in uh, fermentation, they call that slopping. Like if you were talking, if you were talking to like somebody that makes sauerkraut or kimchi, or you just take a little bit from the last batch and seed it to the next batch. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and I've found that that works really, really well, especially if you're in kind of more remote places and you don't always have access to getting more if you fuck it up or, you know, your rice wash takes a couple of days and, you know, it can set you back on schedule for production. Um, and then sometimes too, you know, it's also funny when you're trying to teach some of this stuff to people you're consulting with. I was teaching up in uh, Claremore, Oklahoma, and we had a neighbor get totally flooded out by the river. And I was like, cool, just apply some IM, liquid IMO and some labs, I'll, here, I'll give you a couple gallons of each of them since we're already making enough for all of our stuff, plus a whole bunch more. And he threw the one gallon of labs at me and told me to take my hippie shit back to California. And I was like, dude, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so sometimes people people don't up. want help. People don't, people don't, people have such a hard time with conventional agriculture with the concept of competitive exclusion and how having other microbes in there to eat the same metabolites that those pathogens normally feed on to colonize to get started 
can prevent outbreaks of disease completely um, with many different things. Uh, root rot being a great example. If you have really good lactobacillus in your system, you can run water into the low 80s, although not ideal and very low in oxygen. But in an NFT system, if you have a heat wave and you're running an NFT with aquaponics, it prevents any kind of root rot in those things completely. You know, we've and, and, and so even combining some of these um, um, CANF methods with some of even aquaponics or, or hydroponics can really help save your ass with, against some of these pathogens that otherwise can be you know, quite difficult to deal with in some of these more extreme type of, you know, regular events that people are running into both in the commercial scale and in their backyard. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's so much crossover and there's so many applications. It's, uh, it's really cool that you are taking it so aquatically. Um, the whole aquatic IMO thing fucking blew my mind at the, uh, at the conference uh, a few months back. That was, uh, that was, I'm really excited to do some of that this year. Um, try to get, try to get my duck pond cruising. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a bunch of microscope work with that and, uh, and showing a bunch of different examples and stuff here in the next couple of weeks. So hey, with that, with that microscope thing, if you, if you could show like, oh, it looks like this. And then we waited six hours and now it looks like that. And this is what it smells like when it looked good. And this is what it smells like when it looked bad. It would be cool to have that, like that sensory, what it smells like versus what it looks like under the microscope. I feel like that's really missing. And that would be, that would be really cool to, to hear about. There with like stinky feet and like how many stinky feet or whatever <laughs> yeah 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 rate it rate it with the socks and the stinky feet that'd be awesome um let me go back to my questions here uh um so what uh what other things do you have uh, as far as advice on plant flow size and scale? you know you've worked with you know dealing with all of those different issues and you know, sometimes this can be a bit of a challenge when you're trying to stick to more um, natural methods. Yeah, so um, in Maine, it's very much a plant count game. So for a while, I was like, cool, I'll just grow the biggest fucking plants I can inside. And, and now I don't have any problems. So I tend to try to grow like half pound or bigger plants inside if I can. I don't always work out, but that's always what I'm shooting for is like kind of like a half pound size per plant. And I'm able to just go directly from a aero cloner into a four inch pot and then into a no-till bed. So like up potting is very labor intensive. And anytime you can get rid of up potting, uh, you're going to save yourself money on potting soil. You're going to save yourself labor on up potting. You're going to save yourself floor space. Uh, you're going to save yourself water because beds are much more efficient to water. So there's just so many advantages to being in pots as little time as you can. Um, and getting to your, you know, your low till or, you know, or whatever your, your final destination container is as quick as possible. Um, so what that's kind of what I've came to, I have gone directly from aero cloner into my destination bed, but um, you do lose a clone every once in a while. And that sets you back a pretty fair amount. So I do like that middle stage, make sure they take, make sure none of the roots snap off. And, uh, you know, once they, you know, once they're a little bit happy and a, a root or two pokes out the bottom of the four inch pot, they get up potted. Um, so I think that that's like, people think they have to like amend a ton or some nonsense like that. I mean, you can pretty much just take worm castings and peat moss and mix them together and take something out of your cloner and put it into that. And in a week you can put it into its destination pot. So you don't need like some, 
you know, you can get a bag of soil. That's perfectly fine. But you don't need some super amended, super fancy thing to just get a plant from an aerocloner into a final destination pot, especially if that destination pot is really healthy and full of worms and microbes and mulch layers and mycelium. It's the plant's going to get everything it needs once it gets into its uh, into its bigger container. Um, yeah. And then and then I'm actually moving plants. I'm moving beds around. So like I have a wall that I open up and I move beds that are on pallet jacks and casters from my bedroom into my flower room. And I do like a whole living soil, soil shuffle where uh, I'm harvesting every month. So I have two beds in my bedroom, two beds in early flower, two beds in late flower. As soon as I harvest the late flower beds, they move into the bedroom and the veg beds become the early flower beds. And it's this continuous cycle and because you can use such less light in your bedroom, you end up saving a lot of startup costs, which is people talk a lot about just slamming beds on the concrete. And that's all well and good if you want to spend double the amount of money on lights. But if you are a small operation, that can really be hard to pull off in the beginning. Lights are a pretty big uh, startup cost. So I, I, it's more manpower to move beds, but it's much less overhead to get started. So um, yeah, I think that shuffling of larger containers of soil is um, more efficient for me, even though it's a little abstract. Um, so yeah. No, it's uh, very interesting. And, and I think that, you know, moving the plants one time like that between rooms is not really a big deal in terms in the scheme of things. Like, uh, I think, you know, I often talk to people about that too, about, you know, what, when we do aquaponics, for the same reason that you just said, you know, we put them in dual roots on pots and we can pick those pots up from a bedroom and drop them into the flower room. And we, we can keep, again, just like you're saying, the, the set the one set of lights for this room and then the bedroom you know can can be kept separate and it, again it does cut down on overhead and then also number of hours as well i even had a uh, if you're really really stuck you can even do a, there was a guy in alaska that only had a battery bank that could you know do so many hours a day uh you know and you know because of the darkness and all that and they're running four hours on four hours off for veg and 12 hours on 12 hours off for flower and because it broke up that night cycle the same way, they could basically do 12-12 on both veg and flower to reduce their power output as much as possible. Um, but everything was, you know, maybe not growing quite as fast, but they were able to get harvests that were, you know, perfectly good enough for them where they were. So um, you can get really creative if you really have to in those kinds of situations. But I think that's a really interesting idea about putting them on casters. Um, did you build a frame for them yourself or? Yeah, so I'm actually getting ready to go to stage two, which is like redesign the whole frame out of angle iron so I can get the profile back. But currently, everything is on like an eight inch caster that is on a 10 inch box frame that I built. So just like you would joist out a floor, you know, it's just ten, two by tens and they're all stood up and plywood on the top and plywood on the bottom. You can see the beds in the back. That white part is the... Uh, those are two by tens, and then the whole thing is wrapped in Tyvek because uh, the Tyvek will allow moisture through, but not water to penetrate the wood rather than putting it on a non-permeable surface like plastic. I mean, it is a plastic type material, but it's a breathable plastic, so it doesn't have um, anaerobic conditions in the same way. Um, and I've had pretty good good luck with Tyvek over, over wood. It's actually been working pretty good, but I'm losing like 16 vertical inches there with the wheels and the boxes. So I don't know, maybe maybe this summer I'd like to drop it all down to like a more highly engineered, uh, lower profile, you know, four inch caster on a, uh, on a one inch, you know, kind of metal frame. So we'll see, but yeah, you can see the pallet jack in the background and, um, 
Yeah, Ooh. what is that? Yeah, I don't know what plant that is. It's got some thin blades. I I want to say it's orange cream pot, but uh, yeah, it looks good. Decent, decent. You know, not the best round. You can see the stems a little redder than I'd like, but you know, it's a you know we live and we learn. I mean, sometimes the plants just throw red stems. I know it. Pretty much every yeah, blueberries. Bright red. Yeah, blueberries fucking, they've got that natural purple stem, so they, they'll throw it real fast. So, But uh, yeah, some of that WSK, I feel like, does help with that. I don't usually use WSK, but water-soluble potassium does seem, to, does seem to help with that. But when the beds are super healthy, then, they're, you know, it, it's not as much there. So it'll, it'll peak out and creep through, but um, that's a big indicator that I'm always, like, looking to attack. You know, I'm always like, okay, we could do a little better, you know, get this a little greener, so. Uh, what do you do for soil mixes in your beds? Um, so, so yeah, so I haven't really disturbed them since I put it in. Uh, what I did was uh, I did like an inch of granite and then a layer of potting mix. And I can, I just, there's a, there's a local place called Living Acres and they make like, you know, nice greenhouse blends and things like that. And they're cool people and they're nice to deal with. So I generally deal with them when I can. Um, so basically I've got, I got an oats blend from them. So it's like they use oats as their aeration instead of like rice holes. So you kind of get a, I was like, well, that would probably be nice. I bet the IMOs would like eat on the oats. So it's like their compost blend with some oats and a little bit of perlite. And, you know, it's a pretty standard peat blend like that. Um, so basically I, you know, I bought, uh, three yards, three yards of that goes into two beds basically. Um, so then I did, I started with a layer of granite. Uh, so crushed, uh, if anyone is familiar with a concrete yard, you can go to a concrete yard and take them two buckets and say, I would like crushed three quarter inch stone in this bucket. And I would like concrete sand in this bucket, not masonry sand. You don't necessarily want, you could get yellow bar, but I went with concrete sand and those buckets were each a dollar. So I paid $2, uh, per bed for my parent material. Um, so I did an inch of granite and then maybe like two, three inches of um, potting mix. And then I did a inch of sand, maybe less, maybe a quarter inch of sand um, and then kelp meal. And that was kind of my sandy beach layer, if you will. Then I did another few inches of potting mix. Then I did like a light IMO four um, and a pine shaving kind of wood chip layer. And then I just did the rest potting mix and recycled soil for my previous containers. Um, so no real amendments other than a little bit of kelp and some sand and some stone, um, you know, and then obviously whatever was in the, the more simple compost heavy um, blend. Uh, yeah. And then IMO4 on top and I planted a bunch of clover and yeah, I like clover. I've been playing with other things clover has its obstacles and its advantages so i just planted a bunch of strawberries so now i'm doing strawberries in my bed so we'll see how that goes um but yeah that was kind of the potting mix blend that i did uh chris recommended the granite um so then i got creative with it because i used to be a mason so i know what's available at those yards pretty well and you know got me some uh concrete sand is cool because it's not from a beach like bar sand is from a beach Concrete sand is actually usually crushed limestone and crushed other multiple stones. So you're getting a lot more trace minerals. Like you're going to get a lot more like boron and 
um, and iron and aluminum and like all those cooler trace minerals that make the silicas different colors. When you combine the silicas with the minerals, it's where you get all those cool colors in stone. Um, so that's like a cool thing about concrete sand is you're getting a huge variety of different stones from your local area. Um, whereas bar sand, you're just getting silica basically. Interesting. I didn't, you know, I didn't think about that. And it's a, definitely a good tip for sure on the sand. Yeah, it was a dollar too, right? Dollar a bucket. It's pretty hard to beat. I mean, even if it's not as good, it's like, it's a dollar. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. Um, do, you, uh, do you have any other advice for, as far as indoor KNF goes? You know, you seem to be um, uh, more experienced. Yeah, in moisture. Get Keep your bed super moist. Get some red wigglers. I feel like, honestly, IMO4 or worm castings fixes everything. I just got a worm bin about uh, nine months ago, and it immediately stepped my game up to the next level. Um, you can do a lot by just having, you know, composting worms, red wigglers in your beds and kind of mulching and feeding the top. They really do a lot to help that food chain. Um, so that's been really nice. But yeah, keeping your beds wet when you have high microbial activity, as soon as there isn't enough water, um, things get really interesting and microbes start locking up water and drying out areas. You get all that hydrophobia and it's really hard. Not only is it hard to rehydrate, but if you think like, okay, let's say it's week three and you're, let's say you're at day 20 and between day 20 and day 24, you ran out of water. That, that four days is going to affect your end product really, really drastically. So any time when you let the beds dry out, I feel like every cubic inch of soil that is wet is directly proportional to the cubic inches of weed that you harvest. So um, anytime things dry out, it, it drastically affects your yield and your quality at the end. So you really want to be really on top of hydration, keeping everything living. As soon as the living soil bed starts to dry out, I, I feel like it gets really dicey in there and you get a lot of unhappy critters and biology really fast. So when you're adding that much life, you need to make sure they all have enough, enough moisture. Um, because once you get worms and mycelium, it's, and you're in a drainage, like something that can drain, it's kind of hard to overwater. I mean, you certainly can overwater, but um, it doesn't seem to be happening very often in a, in a fully living system. So I would, I implore you to lean into more moisture and um, yeah, and, and go, you know, lots of liquid IMOs, lots of IMO fours. Um, they, they really, balance is always the answer. I see a lot of people chasing deficiencies instead of seeing that as a sign of like, oh, cool, I don't have full balance yet in my soil. I need to keep powering towards full balance. I see people start, oh, I need to amend with this thing or I need to, I don't have enough, I don't have enough phosphorus it's locking out. It's like, well, if you had balanced soil and a micro microbiome that was balanced, you wouldn't have lockout. So don't try to, don't necessarily try to fix the problem, try to understand what the source problem is. And it's always a lack of biological diversity and biological health. So like, you don't even really need to know what the problem is because the answer is almost always more biological health and worm castings have such a huge array of nutritional availability that if you think the problem is nutritional, you can almost always use worm castings in a living soil system. And if the problem is biological, you can almost always use IMO4. I'm sure that I'm oversimplifying it, but in a commercial small scale setting, it's good to keep things simple to start and then get 
more complicated when things are already operating pretty well. But yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I can't stress that enough uh, uh, on starting simple and, and then slowly adding more, more levers. A lot of times people try to do everything all at once and, and it ends, gets to be overwhelming and then they, they feel like they, they don't, you know, have a grasp of what's going on. And it certainly can, uh, can feel that way too, especially with how much people rattle off all the different uh, synonyms or you know acronyms and things like that for for the KNF stuff. Uh, you know, we get comfortable and have an understanding of it, and I can go through it quickly. I know the first time I heard Chris talk, I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, it took me a minute to, to learn the rings, but as long as you you know take your IMO to where you can turn it into IMO uh, liquid IMO or 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 an IMO four base. Uh, for your compost, uh, either one, depending on your methods. And then the, the labs, as far as, uh, you know, keeping things clean when you think there might be a contamination issue or, or for use as a, a mold control. And you can really do a lot with just those, you know, and then add on the other components as you start to get more experienced. It really is kind of the, the easiest way. But if you're going to start with anything, start off with IMO. Nothing will make a bigger difference in your garden uh, than the IMOs, for sure. Yeah, I, I used to run sub-irrigated. So before I had my beds, I had all sub-irrigated planters. So I ran 72 sub-irrigated planters and I was making labs like nonstop, right? I was just basically always making labs and putting it in there instead of VM1. So I got pretty regular in the regimen. And uh, I remember Chris was like, oh yeah, just put liquid IMO in the reservoirs. And I was like, really? Like, I just thought that would be so taboo because I was like, well, it's, you know, you can't put an aerobic product into a, you know, into a reservoir that's liquid, that'll become anaerobic. And, but I was just like, all right, I believe him. I don't know. And I did it twice and I never had another sub-irrigated planter go sour like that. If anyone's ever ran sub-irrigated planters, you're always checking for that swampy smell. Once it has a swampy smell, you either need to add EM1 or labs to get it to turn back over to aerobic. And I added liquid IMO twice, and I never in another year, I never had another sour sub-irrigated planter. So it's, I mean, you could do so much with labs, and then as soon as you add liquid IMO onto it, it's like uh, things become very hands-off very quick. And uh, yeah, and you just can just keep repeating those two processes and have really have really amazing success. Get yourself to a really good 80% success. And then you can worry about that last 20% of like, oh, I, if I do this one little thing or I get the lights just right or you know, whatever. The other thing too I've noticed, and I've had a couple of, uh, you know, coming from the aquarium world, especially with aquaponics. And, you know, I got started doing traditional, you know, tropical fish. Liquid IMO and labs is incredible for, for uh, aquariums as well. It helps keep your system clean. Um, but labs in particular is good for treating mold, uh, fungal infections in, in fish. Um, uh, we have uh, especially um, uh, bluegills. So bluegills and perch beat the shit out of each other pretty on a regular basis. They're just more territorial. They get kind of fin nippy. And uh, it's not uncommon for commercial producers to lose maybe one or two a week or three a week from a large, a large batch of them because they have 500 or a thousand of them in there and they're just nipping at each other. And, you know, once in a while they get a secondary infect, just the way that we do, sometimes you get an infection and it can be, you know, more serious than others. With, since they started adding just the cheese portion of lactobacillus uh, to the diet completely eliminated that entirely. Um, so wow. that, I think that, you know, combining some of these methods too, with some of our other methods of agriculture, especially animal husbandry really can make a huge difference. I mean, they even use it in places like um, Asia for neutralizing the, the pig waste. 
and, and things like that to turn that into fertilizer, you know, and that's one of the worst, most toxic things that's produced in agriculture, you know, and, you know, turning that into a much more microbial friendly, uh, non-stinky uh, fertilizer is, is the way to go versus like these cesspools that get carted off to who the hell knows where, you know? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, there's so much, uh, yeah, there's so much cool stuff to be had there. Um, I've, I've never had powdery mildew on a cannabis plant in my farm, which I know is extremely rare for people uh, up where I live and really just in cannabis in general. I've had it on my clover growing with my cannabis and I've had it all over uh, like squash plants and like pumpkins in my greenhouse growing with my cannabis and I still haven't had any on my cannabis and I I do think that has a lot to do with a lot of labs and you know just probiotic farming like just the whole you know just the whole um the style it's just uh it doesn't seem like that opportunistic pathogen has the ability to establish itself on on any of my plants so maybe it's just beginner's luck but um really really happy to not ever people ask me about it all the time like i don't know i've never never had the issue so yeah no i i've, I've um definitely noticed it on i do a lot of i, I really like doing a large uh, competition pumpkins as well it's like one of my other hobbies i don't really talk about too much but it, it's That's amazing squash awesome. and cucumbers and pumpkins uh as far as spraying the leaves of labs completely eliminates all that powdery mildew same thing with blight on tomatoes you know you, you start to die off from the bottom especially yeah. in the uh, really really helps with that as well the other thing that we've noticed is, you know, people often talk about septoria being like this horrible, really hard to treat thing. Uh, and it's a horrible problem in Oklahoma, anywhere in Oklahoma, Texas, um, in, in Illinois, uh, you have these huge natural outbreaks of septoria. Well, we've treated them with lactobacillus and liquid IMO and in foliar sprayed like uh, uh, one application of labs to help knock it back. And then Three, uh, two or three applications of liquid IMO completely reversed uh, septoria infections and infected plants and, and prevented it entirely when it's applied before uh, the season starts. So uh, again, even just local biology can completely eliminate some of these super scary pathogens that people are running into uh, with cannabis. And that was something that actually I was going to ask you about is what has your experience has been as far as pest control and pest management um, uh, with KNF? That's something that yeah yeah so I've had a pretty like passive definitely I feel like they were like the second problem I solved like the first problem was like how do you even do k and f what is no till how does this stuff all work and then I feel like once I got all that figured out that's when um yeah yeah is that the orange one no it's the no that's a so I have no, a, that's a different organic one. pest and, and disease control. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. So I've got the orange one. I think that one's even more specific. I like mine has a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, so I actually made, I've made Jadam wedding agent and um, I actually made all those JHSs. So that Jadam herbal solution. And I actually figured out how to jar it. So no one, I, that I know of was able to, was jarring it before. Like it was, they tell you to make it in and store it in a plastic bottle. And I actually just started water bathing it and jarring it all. And I've been able to store those for uh, almost two years now, um, jarring them. Really Steve, really you got cool. a seriously bright light on you, huh? There we go. Sorry. That was, uh, no, I just, uh, uh, 
my studio is only kind of half set up because I've been in two places at once and I got to finish resetting everything back up. Hence also why the microphone isn't working right now. I'm in like so. Um, but yeah, this is the book I was talking about here. Um, yeah, there we go. It was cutting yeah. out. It was putting your potent ponics like background over it. So I was kind of like missing out on what it looked like. Um, yeah, so, I, so I've gone through and made a lot of JHSs and I actually figured out how to jar the JHSs for long-term storage, which it's not like a complicated thing to figure out. It's just people were saying that you couldn't jar it. And I was like, well, this is my fourth time making it. So I'm going to try something new. And I was able to like pour it into mason jars and then water bath that and seal them. And they all, you know, lock top, like the, you know, the button pops in and I've been able to store those successfully for over a year now, um, just at a, sh a shelf stable. So that was really cool. Um, those do work good. I, depending on how bad your cover crop is and your, how at home your pest is, um, I do definitely prefer predator mites for a lot of that stuff. I've had um, really good success with persimilis. Basically, I battle spider mites pretty intensively and not much else. Um, yeah, I've had a, a few hiccups here and there, you know, like little thrips here and there, uh, little aphids here and there, but spider mites are kind of the reoccurring um theme uh also some leaf hoppers do come in and they tend to piss me off pretty good but they just do a lot of secondary damage like they eat they don't really eat cannabis but they seem to fuck up like some of my companion plants so i'm like well i guess i'm just gonna take this companion plant out for a while so i don't know um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Leaf hoppers can vector quite a bit like white flies do can vector other random diseases the only thing that i honestly have had consistent um luck with as far as treatment with uh leaf hoppers has been velifer which is a particular strain of uh, bavaria bassiana uh, it's the only one but we actually had uh, quite a bit of uh, leaf hopper problems um in georgia and uh, we tried a couple different bavaria bassianas and that one really hit them hard way way harder than all the others so and, and not only that but all three of the different species that we were finding in the garden we're getting infected versus the other ones, which it seemed to work on one or two of them, but not all three. So. Oh, wow. That's really awesome. Yeah. I actually have that one. Um, you know how it goes. Yeah. It's just, I'm sometimes I just like buy things and then I don't get into the practice of using it and I move on to the next thing. Um, so I'll have to, uh, I'll have to give that a try in the future. That sounds, uh, sounds awesome. I think some of these micro insecticides are really cool. I'm really glad that that's, become feasible and like a first line of defense in a lot of ways or a third line of defense however you want to look at it but it's a cool option to have this is the product for those of you that aren't familiar with it it's great for white flies aphids spider mites mealybugs thrips uh i've had good luck with it against leaf hoppers um, it seems to be more aggressive than most of the other bavaria bassiana strains that's bavaria bassiana ppri 5339 um, it is made by BASF, so, you know, uh, honestly, not the people we enjoy supporting, but shit works, and it's organic, and, oh, I don't know if it's organic certified, but, you know, it's, it's a very Bastiana strain, so it's a natural product, you know, it's something you have to really worry about as far as, uh, you know, toxicity or anything like that. Yeah, it's a good biological. Oh, yeah. Yeah, biologicals are fucking cool. Uh, and then, uh, uh, okay. Uh, have you tried doing any of the IPMO yet? Um, like you, you touched. No, I haven't. Yeah, that's this spring. That's on the on the docket for this spring. 
Um, and not that we have to get all the way into it, but I would like um, uh, like a rundown of like when I'm making the rice boxes, if you've had some golden ratios, like, you know, one parts insect frass to, to four parts rice. And if you have a favorite type of insect frass. Sure. So in Zimbabwe, we were doing 300 grams of insects to 700 grams of rice. Uh, for our batches, mm -hmm. making one kilo batches is because that was roughly the size of the container we had to cook it all up in. So that just made it simple for the workers. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, uh, we were collecting grasshoppers and stuff, but we've had a lot of luck out here too. Um, in Georgia last year, we trialed it with, um, um, uh, what the hell is it called? Japanese beetles and used them mm -hmm. as the insect grass and just collected a bunch, drowned them in water. Uh, and then uh, put them into the, the frass and, and cooked it with the rice, uh, and, and that worked. Uh, and then we also how, uh, same ratio. How how important do you think it is that you collect the bug that you're trying to kill, or is it more just like a bug with an exoskeleton? Like, I, how specific do you think the bug thing needs to be? I think you you can use regular insect frass, but I think that you'll have better results if you can collect stuff that's going to be local. Any local insect, it doesn't really matter. You're just trying to collect those local Riveria type fungi that feed on it. So if you can collect some stuff that's going to be a natural food base for that local mm -hmm. fungi, you're going to have a better um, you know, time collecting them and seeding it into the rest of it. Because once it seeds onto that, it's going to find the rest of the chitin and all the rest of it with the other insect frass and, and spread and grow on that. But you got to seed it, right? That's what we're trying to do. So that's why you kind of yeah. if you can collect even just a handful. It helps a lot. But awesome. Yeah, that's a, I was I was sort of thinking of like what kind to buy. But I now that you mention it, it makes way more sense to try to collect something that that fungi has already eaten before even if it's going to eat something different later you want to feed the fungi that's in the region that's like seems obvious now so thank you this makes your collections yeah think of it the same way that we do with our soil right we think about trying to get local stuff taking local fungal branches and putting it onto the spores fall down all the rest of it we're trying to do the same thing except we're targeting insects instead of the plant roots right so we got to think of it in a way where okay we want to try and collect as much of the local insects as we can. We can supplement the rest of the weight with insect frass so that we have, a, you know, a bit of a balance there or, you know, all, all of it local if you can, but that can be a pain in the ass to collect unless you have little kids around, uh, you know, give them a nickel <laughs> for insect or something, you know, you, you can, you can, you can make it, use them to your advantage, you know, gives them, makes them feel like they're helping. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, that could be definitely something that could, and we did it in Zimbabwe. We just give the kids a couple bucks a day to go collect the grasshoppers and it worked great, you know? So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, they got nothing else to do, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. They're learning about science. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah it's great. Um, but what it does is it allows you to set out those different boxes and collect them the same way you would uh, convert them into IMO two, And from that, we've been using that straight into a liquid IMO spray. Um, and that works really well. Now, um, you, that's kind of the quick and dirty, like I need something now. Um, if you do have the time, take that and then to convert it into IMO uh, th two, then three, then four. Chris is more of a fan of, of adding the insect frass at the IMO three point. Um, I think combining the two methods is a really good method as well because you are getting that initial collection that's more hyper-targeted towards the insects uh, and then having it propagated out in the three and four with additional insect frass. 
I think definitely is, is, you know, probably the key. If you have time and you're doing it larger scale and you have the time to do that, that's definitely like the best way to do it. But if you're just a big operation and you're in a panic because you just found a bunch of aphids or some shit, you can quick and dirty it, make a batch in like four, five days, liquid IMO, you know, to IMO two, liquid IMO, and just get it out there just to try and start fighting the war. But, you know, it really kind of depends on, you know, <laughs> where you're at when you, when you come into the whole concept. I dig that. I think people are, uh, they don't realize that you can, you can pull over and make a liquid IMO at every stage. Like at, at uh, your first IMO two collection, make, take half of it, make liquid IMO and also try to make IMO three. And then with your IMO three, make another liquid IMO and, you know, yeah, keep making liquid IMOs until you get to liquid IMO four. Don't, don't wait, you know? Um, yeah. And you'll notice too, you'll get different benefits from different ones. That's why I want to start doing more documented microscope work with those different ones because it'll help quantify a lot of this. And then I think too, the other thing I'm super excited about um, because of the virus that shall not be named because uh, we'll get a bunch of disclaimers and shit on the, on the YouTube video. Um, I mean, we've done that before. We don't have whole episodes on, on some of those topics, which we won't get into tonight, um, uh, especially with Kevin McKernan and, and some other people. But um, uh, <laughs> um, the rapid DNA testing has become very, very cheap. And I think in the next couple of years, you're going to have a desktop unit that you can put on your computer and take soil samples or plant samples and run it through and find out what microbes or endophytes or other things are in it. In a, in a pretty rapid form. And then we can start to map this out through crowdsourcing and find out what is going on with these different things. And that's something I'm super excited to, to because it's something that I, you know, it was always this kind of daunting thing that seemed like it was gonna take like a hundred years for everyone to kind of work out through university work. And now with that, how rapidly a lot of this technology has evolved, uh, you know, I think we're five or 10 years away from having a lot of the answers to this stuff. And um, because of how rapidly the technology is evolving, you know, specifically because of some of the different, you know, world events that have happened recently. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, there's a, there's a fellow, Craig, um, me and him went to, like, our first KNF class was together, and I mean, that dude is brilliant. Like, I remember Chris was showing stuff on the microscope, and I was like, oh, I think I know what that is, and he's, he's just, like, rattling off Latin words in the back, like, I'm like, who is that guy? Um, he really knows the stuff. He's uh, New York, uh, NYC, NYC, like New York Mycology on Instagram. And uh, me and Chris both sent him down our IMO4 samples. And uh, I think I also sent him a soil sample as well. And he's getting, he's doing like shotgun metagenomics, I believe is what it's called. I could be misinterpreting it, but he's basically going to get like a, a raw data readout of all the available DNAs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Craig is a, is a brilliant person. And um, I'm, really excited to see what he comes up with. He's one of these people like pushing, you know, some of this actual DNA analysis on some of this, you know, compost and living soil uh, kind of things we got going on. So he is one of the, the real deal scientists making it happen where I'm too busy on the farm to do much, you know, legitimate science, um, which is why I appreciate Steve so much, like doing real science where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just farming. So. Yeah, but a lot of the, the science comes out of that kind of stuff, you know, it was uh, Chris working on that farm and noticing that, you know, that one batch of grain had weevils in it. And that was the spawn for IPMO. Like that's, this, a lot of these weirder things doesn't, don't, doesn't come from university work. I think that, I mean, gosh, like if you look at how much, just to use an example, look at how much aquaponics has evolved in the last 
five years and, and it's because there has been this an influx of cash from the cannabis world that's allowed people to experiment with stuff that hasn't been so you know uh, uh, frustratingly suffocated by the university world's um, you know tight restrictions in terms of experimentation and funding you know and that's really you know a lot of so so there's a lot of these different things that you know thanks to cannabis and having the ability to, to kind of bankroll some of this research into some of these more organic methods just like you're talking about really is kind of a, a way that for us to kind of move general agricultural forward i mean even look now at how much the 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 um general ag is shifting more towards uh, microbial applications of, of solutions for pest control you know whereas five ten years ago that was not the case and that's because uh, they you know people have kind of slowly proven the shit works better yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to take kind of like, I think of, you know, my indoor grow as a laboratory, like people are like, Oh, lights are, you know, they're bad for the environment. And it's like, well, pretty much every laboratory in the whole world uses more energy than I use in my little tiny laboratory. And I'm proving, you know, these carbon neutral ways to save soil. And it's like, now I'm going to be able to take these into different atmospheres and different places and apply these principles from my little indoor grow into, you know, larger scale agriculture and things like that. So it, I, I have a practical applicable knowledge, though I don't have white papers and I probably don't plan on pulling over and, you know, going down that road there, there is still carryover from what I do to like actually help people in the world. And I can work hand in hand with these scientists to like hopefully help do that. So. I know you're also working in South America soon. They're doing some work down there. Yeah, it seems like what's going on. So um, yeah, uh, Joshua Steenland was speaking about um, about a, an agroforestry carbon offset project that he has. So they found a lot of oil in Suriname and Guyana, and they're doing a huge agroforestry project along the main river that runs through the, one of the rivers that runs through the Amazon rainforest that parts those two countries. Um, so there's gonna be an agroforestry project around those rivers and it's a half a million acres. Um, so I'm, I, he said that I am on the team. So, uh, I'm really excited to see how that comes to fruition and just do like IMO2 collections in the rainforest and try not to get eaten by anacondas. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to get down there and, uh, yeah, work with the people and, and see what it's like and make some giant piles and, you know, apply them to huge acres and, and try to, I think what people don't talk about with IMO2 is, the ability to store ecological health for a long time. So you can take IMO collections and store them somewhere safe. And if something happens to that like aquatic system or that very valuable bio, you know, that, that type of atmosphere that in the forest that's hard to replicate, you can make an IMO four and rebuild that part of the forest with that type of ecosystem. So it'd be cool to go down to the Amazon rainforest and get some snapshots of some of these healthy systems and put them away before we accidentally mess them up. Um, so to me, that's, that's a, that the restoration ability of, of Korean natural farming is, is something that we don't talk about and is really hard for a lot of the other composting technologies to compete with because IMO2 can be stored indefinitely um, or at least for, you know, a decade, no problem. Uh, that, that gives you the ability to every 10 years say, oh, we didn't fuck this up. Cool. Let's take another IMO2 of it. And in the next 10 years, if we fuck it up, we can kind of, you know, maybe not fix it, but at least not start from zero. So. Awesome. Uh as someone who myself who spent time down the Peruvian Amazon, which is uh, uh, maybe a slightly different area of it, but uh, still down there, 
prepare to be experience new levels of pain from insects that you can't believe can put out that much levels of pain. That was the thing with like, oh, ants and other things like that. You're just like, how is that possible? They hurt so much. Oh, dude. But, I'm, yeah. But uh, oh, the other fun thing, if you ever get in this, any forest biome, particularly the jungle, um, get a big white sheet and a black light, like an LED black light uh, or a, a battery powered black light, and set it in the center of the sheet at night. You'll attract insects because insects can, it's like a beacon for, for insects that can see in the UV spectrum. And you'll see all kinds of crazy bugs that never come down to the ground that just are up in the canopy and stuff. And you can see all kinds, especially if you're in an insect collection, you'll find all kinds of crazy beetles and moths and all kinds of neat stuff you've never <laughs> seen before. That's awesome. I got to start training to be like better with bugs. Like, I guess I'm not bad, but I'm not great. You know what I mean? So I got to start training. I mean, we don't have any poisonous spiders or snakes in Maine. So I really like that. And I'm like, oh man, I'm going to the rainforest. It's going to be brutal. So yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing too, shuffle your feet instead of uh, stepping when you're in the sand. Uh, so you don't stand up, step on a stingray because that hurts real bad too. So yeah i don't want to step on a stingray yet that was terrible <laughs> but uh, i'll give you some other tips offline yeah dude, i'm gonna need a full crash course of what not to do in the rainforest so oh, yeah. i'm dude i'm like i'm like worried because i mean even just with the long hair right like i have dreads and it's like i'm like is there something like on my back i'm like no it's my hair you know so i feel like when you're in the rainforest and your hair is running into you you're like it's it's gonna get pretty real nice thing is there's all kinds of good fish to eat all the time and the the best meat i ever had was down there it's a, a, a it's a giant forest rodent called paca they're like a smaller than a capybara uh, and they taste amazing it's like this nice marbled fat like ah uh, it's like wagyu but in like more tender form it, it's so good oh damn cool i'll have to check that out i i'm a vegetarian generally but like if i'm going to a different country I feel like I may want to participate in the culture. So we'll, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else you wanted to mention as far as KNF stuff? I know you're getting, it's getting a bit late there on the East coast. I don't want to keep you up too late. Yeah, it's definitely getting late. Um, oh, I don't know. We did a lot of IMO stuff. Uh, I do a lot of indoor IMO four boxes. Like I have a, in my cellar, I have like a four by eight, cedar box that i made that i mix imo three and four in in the winter to like be able to kind of make in the off season when i'm not so busy um so that's like kind of a cool thing but i mean it's relatively straightforward it's just like you don't want to do it on like a piece of plywood it doesn't work out well it's really helps to have a slotted box with some air holes that's up off the ground so you can get some convection and stuff like that um but uh yeah, I don't know. That seems like, you know, that seems like a lot of things. Good, uh, Gorski says, don't piss underwater in the river. Yeah, the Kendaru, that's another one. There's a fish that'll swim up your urethra if you're uh, not paying attention. Yeah. So I somebody told me that even if you're pissing into the water and you're not in the water, it can swim up. And I was like, there's no way no, it's swimming out no, of the no, water no. up your pee hole. No, no, okay, no. All right. like, you don't want to stand on the river and pee underwater. That That's what it gets you. It's <laughs> It's strictly that they're, they're attracted to the, the ammonia or urea or whatever. Um, cool. Yeah, that, that's that's the thing. So yeah, I always but the, honestly, if you're going to go into the jungle, anyone doing this, if you're especially if you're a male, 
women can do this too if you want to but you're probably gonna be more more easier for men but you have all the dudes pee in one spot on like a sandbar and all the butterflies will land to eat the salts from the urine and you'll get a ton of cool butterflies that you like like all attracted to it just wait like 15 20 minutes they'll come from all over they can smell it dude that is fucking awesome all right, I'm yeah. going to start a notebook of things to do and things not yeah, to I'll do. Yeah, I'll talk to you online. I'll tell you all kinds of cool yeah, shit to yeah. do that, you know. <laughs> Fucking dope. I spent a summer down in Peru, so, yeah, it was fun. Um, uh, anyways, uh, uh, how, uh, anything else you want to mention? I, I had one last question I want to ask you as far as uh, how has it been in the in Northeast market? A lot of people don't realize that uh, – Maine actually legalized the same time California did in 1996, um, which is something that yeah. I didn't know until this like this past year. So, um, uh, you know, how has that market kind of been and evolved over time? I know you guys have had serious issues with your crackhead governor you had there for a bit, and um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, not actually listening to the will of the people, and you know, threatening members of Congress and all kinds of other stupid shit that he did. Yeah, so I came up here because we were buying weed for Maine, allegedly, down in Pennsylvania, and it was fire. Like, <laughs> the weed was so good. Like, I, like, we were just like, okay, that's the way to go. Like, I'd already lived in California, and I was like, I've seen some great weed in California, but what the fuck is this weed? So um, Maine has very much just been kind of like this most slept on giant, and uh, it's been really cool. So I was, you know, I was attracted for clean water and super fire weed, so like, um yeah moving up here people were already really dug in like there was already a bunch of growers that i knew that had been growing indoor super good for 10 years not like i knew super well personally but there's a lot of established farms up here that you know have been growing for a long time and they really know what they're doing especially in the indoor game um which is which is really cool it's uh it's dense with talent so it takes a while before you can like make yourself some elbow space and be like yo i grow good weed too so it's really hard to break into the into the into the weed scene up here and get any notoriety like on a level other than just commercial like actually be you know respected or acknowledged um which is fun to me i think it's more fun that way like it takes you're like dude i'm doing a good job it's like yeah do it for four years straight and then maybe we'll care you know so it's it's uh it's competitive in that sense and it it brings a certain amount of pride and there's, you know, people are, people really want to see good weed up here and they're, they're hard on themselves and they're hard on each other. And, um, I kind of like that. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a ton of good weed up here and we definitely have a super bad recession right now. I mean, not like California, but, uh, this is basically, you know, it happens every, every winter you have the same cycle, right? So the fall happens and a bunch of people grow outdoor weed. So they don't have to go to the store and buy weed because they grew their own weed. At the same time, all the indoor growers also grow outdoor. So you have this double flooding from both sides where the consumers have their own weed that, and the regular producers just are putting extra weed on the market. And pretty much the whole winter, everything is flooded, usually in, you know, until spring, and then you have a huge drought in the summer. And, and that's kind of the flow of the market. But this is by far the worst it's ever been. Um, so we've we've people have officially started stockpiling hundreds of pounds and like grows are now successfully not selling their weed, still growing more weed and sitting on huge back stocks of weed. And the, the price is moving down. Th things are changing. Um, with that said, I have pretty much been able to just completely just not just, it just doesn't really affect me. Um, uh, luckily I've maybe had a little bit, 
I've had to put in a little more work to sell my weed, but I have not had in the last two years, I haven't had any cannabis in my possession for more than two weeks. So like, as soon as I grow weed, I sell the weed. Um, and sometimes I have to do a little more phone calls and a little more figuring out uh, with stores just because the market is a little tougher right now. But because of the quality and the quality that I've established and pretty much all of the store owners want to smoke my weed. So it gives me an uh, advantage above everyone else. So there's there's um, as the market shifts, the top will always be the top and the middle is going to start to settle to the bottom. So um, it's really helpful to be trying to do your best. Um, but yeah, the the market has been a little rough up here for sure, um, but it is better than most other states. Uh, you know, we probably lost, I would say, on average, like $700 on the pound across the board, like $2,500 being like a good price about a year ago. And now things are more like 17 to 2 is like a good price. My price personally hasn't changed, which is nice, but you definitely see the shift in the market. Um, yeah, so it, it is getting it is getting interesting in that sense. Uh, but we do still have the most respected weed on the East Coast, which is nice. People drive up from, you know, all sorts of states to come get weed from Maine with their medical cards. So we have this kind of nice, like, people can come up from New York with their card or Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, use their medical card in our state, and then smoke all the weed here and leave, um, which is cool. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, it, we're definitely seeing, we're definitely feeling what California is feeling, not nearly as bad. And a lot of people are going out of business. There are a lot of grows for sale. I pretty much just finished all my infrastructure. So I can now officially drop my, like, my prices going down drastically, like what I need to make to float by because all my infrastructure is pretty much finished. So I was able to just get my infrastructure where it needed to be as the market collapsed. So I feel like I like just made it through the finish line. Um, so I'm glad I'm not expanding because it's a tough time to be expanding right now. So uh, anybody that's halfway done building a facility is like, that's like not a good place to be right now, um, at least in our state. Yeah, no, it definitely is a, a weird time to be into cannabis, especially in some of the more mature markets. It can be uh, brutal if you're trying to get in late. Uh, Alrighty, well, um, I know it's getting quite, speaking of late, I know it's getting quite late for you, uh, so we'll cut you loose here. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining us tonight. Let me uh, put your Instagram back up so that people can find you. Is there any other ways that people can reach you? Um, how can people find your flower in the stores in Maine? Yeah, um, uh, I guess my my biggest store is Beach Boys. They have three locations uh, in and around Portland, Maine. Um, there's a few other stores. Uh, Top Shelf uh, is like a, a delivery uh, service. They're like Southern Maine, Kind Guys down in Biddeford. Elevated Remedies is over on the coast of Brunswick. Um, you know, and then I bounce back and forth between a bunch of other stores depending on how I'm feeling and, you know, what they're looking for and stuff like that. Um, you can just send me a message and say like, Hey, I'm coming into the state. Can, you know, let me know who to call, who might have your herb at the time. Generally my herb sells out really fast from when it drops. Um, but beach boys is cool because they, they get a bunch of weed from me and then they drop it all slowly and consecutively. So there's a good chance that they always have something of mine on their shelves, whether it's hash rosin, full melt or flour. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. About that. Trying to yell at the dog. I didn't realize my mic was still on. <laughs> um, uh, great. It's wonderful that people can uh, can find you out there. I know I've smoked some of your stuff out in Maine uh, twice now, and it was really fire. So 
uh, definitely excited to finally have you on the show and talk about your your uh, uh, different methodologies and and how uh, your different uh, uh, rosins and other things. So, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. You've you've been a huge inspiration. So the fact that you give a crap about what I have to say is is very uh, is very flattering and uh, kind of surreal. So I I appreciate it, and this was really fun. Sure. Yeah, and uh, definitely helpful. I know. I gave you the rundown on Peru and uh, and the Amazon and all the crazy shit down there. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I don't even have a passport, so I'm uh, I'm gonna need all the help I can get. So thanks, man. All righty. Well, thanks a lot, man. Take it easy. Yeah, later, dude. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was a really wonderful interview we had there with uh, Professor Q on uh, Instagram at Professor underscore underscore Q. Uh, if you're trying to reach him. Um, uh, so you can find them. We'll put a link here in the description of whatever format you're listening to. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about aquaponic cannabis, Marty and I uh, do have the uh, um, APMJclass.com. If you want to learn the long format aquaponic cannabis class, we have over 300 or over 600 lectures on aquaponic cannabis and um, uh, all different types of topics. We'll be adding a bunch more. I'm adding a, a whole bunch more to the uh, the pest control here soon. We're also going to have the uh, uh, pest control portion, we're doing a general aquaponic pest control class, um, actually in the, f- the finishing up some of that here uh, uh, soon. And that'll start to be available uh, here on the website as well. So if you're a vegetable producer and uh, aren't so much interested in cannabis and you want to, you know, don't want to spend quite as much to buy the whole cannabis class, uh, we will have a, a specific, you know, more broad based uh, uh, pest control class for aquaponics uh, here shortly. Um, yeah. Uh, we also are taking applications. You can find a link um, in the Facebook group or on uh, Reddit or anywhere else. I'll put a link in the description here as well. Um, but uh, we are taking applications for the third annual Aquaponic Cannabis Conference. Uh, if you're interested, I'll have a link in chat uh, as well as in the description of the video. Um, but we are taking applications for that. If you'd like to apply for a speaker spot, uh, we're looking for commercial producers, scientists, and other people that have spent quite a bit of time working with aquaponic cannabis. Um, so definitely check that out if you're interested. Um, we will have that available as well. Uh, Alrighty, uh, thanks everybody for watching. Um, if you guys haven't uh, previously uh, uh, seen those uh, conferences, you can check out the previous year's uh, aquaponic cannabis conferences on my YouTube channel. Uh, potent products and they all of them are available in audio format as well on the um, podcast platform of your choice um, i do have each of the individual talks re-uploaded uh, on there if they haven't been uploaded yet from this past year they will be uh, i think i have most of them up there i gotta double check it's been kind of a weird couple excuse me a couple of weeks with this new project so um yeah um next week uh, i forget who we have for next week but uh uh, we will be back to uh, hopefully two episodes a week here before too long. Um, we we'll also have um, uh, edibles available here, hopefully uh, sometime in July or August, uh, again in Oklahoma, fingers crossed. So that'll be good if you're looking for those. Uh, what else is in the works right now? A um, bunch of other fun stuff. Also be sure to check out um, the, uh, uh, the next uh, regenerative, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Supernatural, Supernatural Conference in Oklahoma. Uh, if you guys haven't checked it out already, we have, you can check it out at organiccultivators.net, uh, Supernatural Conference, Oklahoma, 2012, 2022. 
Uh, I'm one of the speakers. I'll be speaking on um, uh, KNF pest control. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, IPMO, you have um, Wendy Kornberg, Chris Trump, uh, Ben Acadia, myself, uh, Dan Kittredge, um, uh, Patrick King, um, uh, Kevin Jodry, uh, and a whole bunch of us, uh, Susan Wainwright Evans, uh, Jana Beckerman, uh, and a whole bunch of other awesome people uh, will be there as well. So um, definitely check that out. Um, and uh, uh, it would be a really good time. Uh, it's the last weekend of July uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, so um, July 29th, 30th, and 31st. Uh, so um, yeah, come hang out. I'll bring a bunch of goodies. It'll be a good time. And uh, yeah. All righty. Uh, thanks a lot for supporting the show. Uh, we will be back again next week. Um, I will hopefully be launching the Patreon content here before too long. We have not launched it yet. Uh, I'm trying to make sure we have a decent amount of content on there before we start launching it. But it'll just be additional way. You know, if you enjoy listening to the show, you want to support it and want to get access to some other cool videos, um, lots of cool videos kind of before they go up on the YouTube. Uh, and, um, you know, kind of some stuff that maybe we don't ever really release to YouTube that's from the classes that we kind of give people that help support the show as well. Um, it's kind of an in-between ground, you know, no one has to support us if you don't want to, if you don't have the money, uh, please don't, uh, don't do that. But uh, if you do, it will be a way to, uh, you know, kind of help uh, just supplement, you know, some of the costs of the show, just so it's a little more self-sufficient financially. But if not, you know, hey, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, alrighty, guys, uh, thanks a lot for watching. And um, we'll catch you guys again next week. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, all the things. And we'll be back again 